Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Sonia Senek, and today's guest is Emily Skerritt. Emily Skerritt is an international rugby superstar. She is vice captain of the Red Roses and may be most known as the player who secured England's 2014 World Cup win with six minutes left in the final match. Emily was the top point scorer at the 2014 World Cup and helped lead England to finals in both the 2017 and 2022 World Cups. She captained Team Great Britain at the Rio Olympics, won a bronze medal at the 2018 Commonwealth Games, and represented England at the 2018 Rugby World Cup Sevens. Emily returned to the 15-a-side game in January 2019, joining the Loughborough Lightning and turning professional when the Rugby Football Union broke new ground by offering full-time contracts to 28 women's rugby players. Emily scored two tries in the Red Roses' 80-0 win over Scotland at Twickenham as England secured the Women's Six Nations title. She was a standout performer at the 2019 Super Series, finishing as a top try scorer, and also secured a number of points as a goal kicker. Emily was named World Rugby's Women's Player of the Year in November 2019 and became the highest ever Red Roses point scorer in the 2026 Nations. Emily is a a once-in-a-generation talent. She carries herself with poise, humility, and humor as she leads women's rugby on an international stage. We talked to Emily about her approach to leadership on and off the pitch, her evolution into a professional rugby player, her podcast, and what it felt like to play in the 2022 World Cup Final. Please enjoy Emily Skerritt. It's lovely to meet you. Would you mind sharing a bit about where you grew up and what inspired you to first pick up a rugby ball? Yeah, so I grew up in Leicestershire, which for any rugby fans in England, Leicester's quite synonymous with rugby, with Leicester Tigers. So I first started playing my older brother. My dad took my older brother along just for him to start playing because some of his friends were going. And I went along really with no intention of playing, just to kind of get mum's hair while she cooked the dinner um, on a Sunday morning. And then I was just stood watching my brother play and one of the coaches was like, oh, do you want to come and have a run around rather than standing there getting cold? Went and had a run around and obviously just loved it. And I went back home and was like, mum, mum, I'm playing rugby. And yeah, that was at five years old. So the rest is is kind of history from there. But yeah, like growing up, I always loved sports. I loved everything. So I was the kid on holiday charging around with the ball, begging my brother to play with her, not kind of sat sunbathing or making sandcastles. So yeah, I've always been really sporty. And from what we've learned about you, you were a multi-sport athlete. So hockey and basketball and rounders, in addition to rugby. Can you share a bit about your journey from rugby being a hobby and just something you love playing to it now being your career? Yeah, I mean, growing up, it was definitely never something I saw as my career, just because actually it wasn't possible when I was growing up. Female rugby players weren't professional. So it was never something that I could really aspire to be. But yeah, very grateful I am now. But yeah, as I said, I just played loads of sports through school. And then I suppose it was probably about the age of 16. I was kind of doing a different sport every evening. And actually then obviously with rugby taking off a little bit, I'd just been selected, I think, for England in the 20s at that point. Obviously everything then started clashing because the time commitment from one goes up, the time commitment from another goes up. And, you know, I don't know, there's three different types of game on a Saturday and you've got to pick one. So it was at that point I then had to just narrow my focus a little bit and 
essentially decide which sport I wanted to continue with. And I think, although I loved all the other sports, I think realistically there was never too much of a choice to be made. It wasn't an agonising decision for me. I think rugby always had my heart. So yeah, I did that probably definitely at 18 when I left school. But yeah, just rugby required loads more of my time, which I was happy to give to it. And are there aspects from the other sports you played or foundations that you built that you still sort of pull on? Do you feel like it was a real advantage for you to try out a bunch of different sports before you focused in on rugby? A hundred percent. And it's one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to youngsters now, if they ask it, is do as many sports as you possibly can. One, so that hopefully you find something that you really love and can engage with and, you know, gets the best out of you, but also because whatever sport you decide on if sport is your thing all the other bits will have given you such a great foundation and such a great base whether it is hand-eye coordination stuff whether it's being a part of a team irrelevant of sport but going later life in the work environment all those sorts of things like I think it's really invaluable and I'm very very grateful that I did that and I'm looking forward to my retirement because I see myself going back to playing lots of sports not yet obviously but whenever that comes Yeah. In Canada, we tend to have a lot of kids get into hockey at age three and then all they want to do is hockey. And there's a lot of encouragement right now to get them into soccer and rugby and basketball is huge now because of the Toronto Raptors. So there's a real push to push them into multifaceted sports. So it's great to hear that that's something you feel like really benefited you. A hundred percent. And I'm sure it's similar over there, but we have like quite defined seasons for things so obviously rugby here is a winter sport so then in the summer it freed me up to play lots of tennis play lots of rounders play basketball on a different evening stuff like that and yeah I genuinely think it's I actually watched a basketball game yes last night night before last when one of the Loughborough teams was playing and I made me miss it a lot but I also thought it's a flipping hard game to play (laughs) down a basketball court so yeah. yeah and the ankle rolls right yeah the probability so how have you managed that journey then from rugby athlete. Okay. You make that decision. Rugby's, you know, it has your heart and you go from being a rugby player to a professional rugby player to now one of the most internationally recognized athletes in women's rugby. How has that been for you on a personal level? I mean, I don't know whether I necessarily agree with that last bit, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's been a wild ride. I think it's only when you like sit back and reflect on it that you can perhaps appreciate it properly. Obviously I've just been in it and I've just been enjoying the ride and obviously everything has been gradual and the next step and the next step rather than obviously kind of naught to a hundred with that stuff but being a professional rugby player is definitely the best job I've ever had and I probably argue I'll, I'll ever have I know I can't have it forever but just the opportunity to do what you love and get paid to do it and just really give the most amount of time to it as well there's nothing more frustrating than you know, wanting to do something and just physically not being able to give everything to it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm hugely proud of obviously the fact that we've got to this point in the game whereby we can be professional. And as I said earlier, young girls can now aspire to be a professional athlete, which I couldn't do, which I think is, yeah, it's really, really powerful. It's amazing to be able to, I guess, be a part of that journey because as one of the older people, we've been through it all, kind of done the working and playing, you know, international rugby at the same time. And it's tough. It was hard. But yeah, I think we're in a really good place, I think, globally and certainly in the UK to continue to push this game forward. And speaking of international play, the Red Roses are a powerhouse in women's rugby. They compete in the annual Women's Six Nations Championship with France, Ireland, Italy, Scotland and Wales. And England have won the championship a total of 18 out of 27 occasions, winning the Grand Slam 16 times and the Triple Crown 22 times. This makes the Red Roses the most successful side in the tournament's history. 
The Red Roses also, of course, won the Women's World Cup in 1994 and 2014 and have been runners up in a number of other occasions. So, Emily, in 2014, you secured England's World Cup win with six minutes left in the match. This, of course, meant that Canada took home silver. We can talk about that later. (laughs) But I'd love to learn more about how you approach your leadership role on this massive international stage. Yeah, I think, again, this has been a journey. I think just me as a personality, I've never been the person that was always wanting to speak and was always wanting to hold the team, as it were, by what I was saying. That was never my natural personality. So I think it's definitely been a journey that I've gone on in terms of being comfortable in those positions, but also obviously maintaining me and what is authentic to me, because there's nothing worse than trying to be something you're not, because people see right through that. And also it's it's incredibly hard and tiring to try and keep up as well. So yeah, I think when I first got capped, I was 18 back in 2008, and I was stereotypical youngster, just <laughs> happy to be there, loving my life at this amazing opportunity. And then obviously fast forward, I think it was maybe 2015, I got my first real leadership position. Oh, sorry, I was part of the leadership group actually in 2014, but in terms of captain, vice captain, it's probably 2015. And I guess you naturally find your feet with stuff like that in a squad and you either become braver or you're just more comfortable within the environment but I'm still not a screamer and a shouter or a dictator or anything like that that's that's just not me and who I am I think in a team whereby you've got you take a squad potentially 30 odd other strong female opinions and voices etc you're never going to please everybody and I think you have to understand and not expect that to be the case either you can't be all things to all people but as I said earlier just being you hopefully is at least one can respect that whether it's something they can really relate to or not and is that balance for you a combination of leading by example and leading through actions and how much of that is also you using your voice and picking your moments how do you manage that balance Yeah, I think those two things are definitely more my style. I think the leading through actions one is obviously the easy one, but it's also the hard one. So it's easy in that you don't necessarily have to say anything inspirational. However, you do need to be playing well in order (laughs) for that to be valid. So I guess there's an element of pressure there in terms of making sure that your own performance is good enough. Because although you may be in a leadership role, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, you're going to be selected just because of that. You've got to be playing well in the first place. And also that's, you know, you want people to respect your position within the team and therefore, you know, showcasing what you're capable of week in, week out is incredibly important. But yeah, I think as well, we're really lucky in our squad in that we have a huge amount of big voices and great people in terms of their tactical knowledge of the game, their experience within the game, et cetera. So I think being able to lean on those people in moments as well I don't know, there's a defensive issue. So you lean on your defensive leader or forward leader or whoever it might be, whatever those different circumstances are, just making sure that different voices are being heard as well, because there's nothing more draining or boring, I suppose, than just constantly the same person trying to say the same thing. It's just in a different way. It doesn't necessarily get through. So the important thing is the message lands and you've just got to try and figure out a way of, I guess, trying to make that happen. And what's the most effective way? Who's the best voice to say it? So the pressure's not all on one person. I think, well, in our squad, obviously, Sarah Hunter is the captain. She's the main boss. So she obviously generally has final say. I'm obviously vice captain. And therefore, obviously, in some games when she's gone off is the main voice as well. But then we call like a strategy group. So dependent on who's playing that day, obviously, 
the tent is a huge, the fly half is a huge part of any team. So it's really important that they have a, a strong voice. The line-out leader, generally somebody like an Abby Ward, she also has a huge voice. And then someone like Amali Packer, she is the screamer and the shouter and the the effing and the blinder that will kind of, you know, really get people fired up. So, and I guess it's almost pulling on the right people at the right times. You know, what do we need from this? Do we need a calm head? Do we need a bit of a kick up the backside and trying to figure that out correctly? So what do you value the most about being a part of the Red Roses? It's a great question. I think obviously there's a huge amount of pride just representing my country. I'm obviously incredibly grateful that I'm able to do that in a sport that I love so much as well. Pulling on a white shirt, being able to play at Twickenham, family and friends. I think the biggest thing is just like, yeah, the pride that you have in representing not just myself, but my family, where I'm from, anyone that's ever worn that shirt before, all of those sorts of things. And also having the opportunity to hopefully inspire that next little girl that wants to, that will go and pull that jersey on as well. I think, yeah, we've come a long way in the game and it's hugely exciting that we're able to kind of be those people now that people can look up to. And in addition to representing England on the world stage, you also captained Team Great Britain at the 2016 Rio Olympics in Rugby Sevens. Did your leadership style change at all as you collaborated with a broader set of athletes and coaches as part of Team GB? Yeah, I think if I'm honest, I was still quite young in my leadership journey at that point. And obviously Sevens is a completely different game, (laughs) as we know. And I suppose the on-field tactical side of things isn't as important in those environments but what was important was that you know we were a full-time group of athletes that were training essentially almost like nine to five it was like a proper day job you know you went to work in the day you came home at night and you repeated that throughout the week which was an amazing environment to be a part of but inevitably a tough one as well because we spent a lot of time with each other and obviously we were building up for what was at that point the biggest competition of any of our lives so you know pressures were high in terms of everybody wanted to go not everybody could and obviously well what did we start as maybe like 20 players it doesn't fit into 12 that would have gone so I think it was trying to just make the best of that situation with the people we had as you say you know we had some Welsh players and some Scottish players that we didn't really know a huge amount about joining what was our core England group so trying to make them feel welcome in fundamentally I guess our house because it was that's where we'd been based and the large group of us were still English so I think that was you know definitely a difficult thing to manage I definitely look back on that kind of campaign if you like and hopefully learned quite a lot from that that I can take forward you know certainly not confessing to doing that perfect or trying to be perfect now but I think it's really important to always learn from different environments And yeah, obviously, like the Olympic Games was just an unbelievable opportunity for us all. Again, something I never thought would be possible because when I first started playing rugby, Olympics wasn't a thing. Uh, Sevens in the Olympics wasn't a thing. And I also thought I'd be too old to still be playing at that point, how naive I was. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it was yeah an amazing couple of years. So I'm a big believer in process driving outcomes. I'm also a big believer in rugby analogies. I mean, Amara and Elizabeth can tell you I use them way too often at work. But as a leader on and off the pitch, what are your non-negotiables in your team environment to facilitate processes that'll lead to success for individuals and also success as a group? I think one of my biggest things, it's probably more of like a personal value than anything else, is just like being a good person. And I think that can 
drive and facilitate so much so you think about a team room environment or just you know day to day as I said we spend so much time with one another being polite being kind lending a hand chipping in all those sorts of things that when I say them out loud I just think well surely everyone does that but unfortunately (laughs) not everybody does but actually they're the things that just keep the wheels moving they're not big things that need a song and dance but they're they're just little things that hopefully keep a, a really nice environment and then I think it's just continuing to communicate with people as well I think continuity and consistency is a massive massive thing you know if you're consistent in your messaging and how you behave in you know all of those things in an environment whether people like it or not whether they can resonate with it or not as I kind of said earlier that's always going to be just different personalities picking up on different things but if you're consistent at least people know what they're getting from you and hopefully they can respect and get on board with that I think the point at which you're up here one day and down here the next day and over there the next day that's the bit where people just uh, you know it's quite a chaotic thing to try and follow. I think people learn that over time that that energy, it's actually an invisible thing, like it's an intangible, but it really matters. Just talking about the ability for people to show up and know what they're getting and have the comfort of some familiarity. And did you learn that over time? Like, was there ever a point in time where you had to reflect on making sure that you showed up a certain way? Or was that always innate to your approach? I think generally as a person everyone like my friends and people close to me call me like a flat line which (laughs) isn't necessarily a good thing but like emotionally I'm a bit of a flat line so you know I never get too excited about something and I never get too sad about anything whereas obviously some people's emotions kind of fluctuate all over the place so I think that part of it is definitely innate to me and my personality and sometimes people get frustrated at that because they're like give me more and I'm like well I'm really happy and they're like (laughs) we'll show it (laughs) but that's just how I am and I said earlier you've got to be authentic to that and obviously there'll be anomalies to that where you are really buzzing about something or you're you know something's really pissed you off or whatever that might be but yeah I think generally it, it was pretty innate to my personality And for most athletes, the initial draw to the sport, of course, is fun, right? Rugby is fun, especially with rugby. Not only do you have fun, but it comes with this incredible community and spirit that helps you grow as a person more than anything. It must take an incredible amount of focus and determination, of course, to sustain your level of play as a professional athlete. I'm wondering how you ensure you still find joy in playing the sport as part of your daily work as a professional athlete. Yeah, I mean... I'm not going to lie, there's definitely been times within, so I got capped in 2008, obviously it's 2023 now, so you don't need to be a genius to work out that maths. It's been quite a long time and there's definitely been times whereby obviously you, I've never gone as far as falling out of love with the game, but inevitably you have your peaks and troughs in terms of how you're feeling about it and that's generally based maybe upon injuries you may have picked up or a circumstance around whether your team's winning a lot or not. And so there's inevitably those kind of highs and lows with a sport like rugby anyway. But I genuinely do just love the game. And I think for me, it's always really important to enjoy the opportunities that I have because I've been incredibly, people say don't call it lucky, but I think I've been incredibly lucky. And just making sure that I'm not going to be in this position forever. You can't be. (laughs) That's how the world works. Unfortunately, everybody gets older and it's not sustainable, especially in a sport like rugby. But And I think the other thing is just make it, you know, I put myself in environments where there's good people, there's people whose company I really enjoy, 
at the moment, obviously I'm at Loughborough and there's some brilliant girls there. If I was going into work every day and there weren't people I could relate to, there was a lot of moaning and whinging and grumpy people. It's just, <laughs> that's just not my vibe. So that would be completely different. And I'd probably have to take myself out of that scenario because I'm not there to be people's counsellors. I'm there to enjoy my rugby and try and get the best out of myself and other people. So I think that's also a huge part of it. So women's rugby has transitioned a lot over the last decade in many countries. Rugby isn't a career option. It has to be sustained simply as sort of a personal passion. As you mentioned before, this means some athletes work full-time jobs and try to fit in training before work and after work and pay to fly themselves across the country or around the world to be part of test matches. And England has really led the way with the growth of women's rugby. In 2019, the Rugby Football Union saw full-time professional contracts awarded to 28 players who made up the bulk of the Red Roses squad. And these were the first professional deals to be handed to female 15-a-side players. With this new structure in the last few years, Emily, have you felt a shift in the commitment of the athletes and the coaches or a change in the performance of the team? Well, inevitably, the commitment is different. I wouldn't say it's any more than it used to be, because arguably when you're working full time or, you know, studying full time, whatever it might be, and also still doing all the training, you know, getting up early, staying after the late, arguably that commitment is probably greater given the context of the rest of your life. However, I think just like everyone thinks, oh, being professional, is, that's amazing. And it is amazing, but it's definitely, it's a transition that you have to go through and you almost have to learn how to be professional. And it's not as easy as it sounds. And I appreciate that sounds probably a bit daft because being paid to play sport and being paid to rest and being paid to do all those sorts of things, it sounds ridiculous, but it's not the easiest of transitions and trying to figure out how that works. I went from working in a school the whole time, as I said earlier, getting up early, staying back late you barely had any free time and then all of a sudden you're plonked in this world where you have loads of free time and it's how you make the most of that you know the extras that perhaps you weren't able to do before like rehab bits or extra bits of kicking or the little skill bits or the video analysis all of that sort of stuff you just physically didn't have time for before now it's really important that you do do those things and you try and squeeze the most out of every opportunity that you have so I think professionalism is it's amazing, but it definitely took me you know, arguably a couple of years to figure that out. You go through the first bit where you're like, yes, so much free time and you just bang on Netflix in any opportunity you've got. And you're just like sat on the sofa for, I don't know, a Wednesday afternoon when you've got some time off and you're just like, what am I doing? I'm just, you know, wasting so much time. And then you try and fill it with other productive things. And then you realize you're too busy and actually you're not resting properly and you're not being recovered and you're not hitting the the training ground properly the next day and then you figure out some balance in the middle and you are making the most of this time because as I keep saying you're not going to be professional forever what's next and making sure you're making some good strides towards kind of life after rugby but also making sure you're making the most of this opportunity in terms of all the other bits you could be doing. So if you could go back a couple of years jump into a time machine and go speak to yourself at the very beginning of that journey what advice would you give yourself? Don't subscribe to Netflix so quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, easy on the clicker. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's really difficult. I think for me, it was important that I didn't get it right to start with because you learn so much from that. And hopefully, you know, the youngsters that have never had to work and play and just come straight into this environment, hopefully they understand the value of preparing for life after rugby, whether it be studying, doing bits of work experience, all of that stuff. Because I guess they're the ones that haven't had to do both of it and therefore perhaps may neglect that more so. 
And you mentioned at the beginning that now there are role models. I love this quote, if you can see it, you can be it. And now you're part of that squad of what younger athletes and younger girls are seeing and potentially seeing as part of their future career. Do you ever have moments on a personal level where you take a second to reflect on what that means for you as part of the bigger rugby ecosystem? Or are you just so in it that you can't yet see the forest through the trees on sort of what your role has been in transitioning from it being sort of a hobby sport to now there being a professional option for women's rugby? I think you definitely have moments where you kind of reflect back or you'll get a message on social media that's like, just wanted to share this with you. My daughter had to do a presentation on their role model and she's picked you and it's this, you know, crayon drawing of you or something. And like things like that, you're like, well, we're actually reaching probably far more people than you really ever appreciate sometimes. But yeah, I think certainly there's a massive element of head down. Let's just keep going with this because I guess from when I started, there's been so many little step changes along the way that actually it's only when you're like, well, look where we are now and look where we started. You really appreciate that whole journey. But yeah, I think the social media side of things has really changed and I guess opened up a new world in terms of that activation with with all those people, with those fans, et cetera, which has been, it's really cool. It is really cool. And it's just trying to get the balance of how you, you best reply or respond or, cause you can't do it all. Cause that's also sure. physically impossible, <laughs> but yeah, it's very cool to think that you may be a, the reason somebody else has either started playing or wants to aspire to be a professional rugby player. So now I have to ask about the 2022 world cup. <laughs> A couple months ago, you were on the pitch playing that final match, setting aside the outcome for a second. I want to know what that moment felt like playing to a sold out crowd at Eden Park with 40,000 people breaking attendance records as it was the biggest crowd to watch a women's rugby match. What was that like for you as an athlete? The pyrotechnics, Rita Ora playing the halftime show. How did that feel? We didn't actually get to see Rita Ora because we were always in the changing rooms. Yeah, we were, a bit, we were a bit sad about that. We did a few karaoke sessions on the bus with her coming <laughs> through the speaker just to make sure we didn't properly miss out. But yeah, we never actually saw her uh, live. It was honestly amazing. I think that, you know, one of the biggest memories I have is one walking out the tunnel because we warmed up on a pitch outside of Eden Park. So we didn't warm up on the pitch. So you normally you warm up on the same pitch and you get a sense of how many people are rolling in and what it looks like and the noise and the buzz, et cetera. Whereas we warmed up outside the stadium so the first wow. time we yeah really saw you know how full it was was when we essentially walked out for the anthems and it was an amazing amazing thing just to see the stands absolutely rammed and then the second one was just stood there taking in the New Zealand national anthem obviously they're at home <laughs> probably 98% <laughs> of the people in that stadium were supporting them so actually just the hearing their anthem sung by so many people and the noise and everything around that was you know it was amazing it was something I'll definitely never forget yeah it was as you say the result wasn't what we wanted it to be however I think if you can step back and you know put it in its own separate box of how far the game has come it was a phenomenal hopefully advert for the game and how do you manage a moment like that, meeting the moment while you're under pressure, under sort of the watchful eye of thousands of passionate rugby fans and the TMO? How do you make sure that you're still delivering and in your zone playing your game? 
Yeah, it probably comes back to kind of what you said earlier around process stuff. You have to be incredibly process driven at that point, trust all the work that you've done to get you to that point and then just try and deliver it. And also obviously accept that not everything's going to go your way. Obviously quite early on in the final, not everything went our way, but that's just also how it goes. So actually it's how can you try and adapt quickly? How can you try and, you know, change things so this isn't really defining factor and little things like that happen throughout the game that you're constantly having to just check yourself on and maybe have a little rethink about how you want to do that etc but yeah fundamentally it's all about the process and trusting in our game plan that we had set out and trusting in the players that we had and the purpose of this podcast is to shed light on all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work that day when you went to work you and your team dealt with disappointment as a result of the outcome of that match despite the fact that you left your hearts on the pitch and played so phenomenally well. And to watch the match as a women's rugby fan or a rugby fan at all was just incredible. But how did you manage that first conversation after the match with your colleagues and your teammates when everyone's put their heart on the line and you didn't get the result you wanted? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, depending on the type of person you are, either tears or swear words, I think. Generally, when you get back into the, the changing rooms, Oh, look, I think everyone of inevitably just gutted. You know, we literally came so, so close and it just didn't quite work out for us. You know, the one thing for me that I always come back to and I've learned this the hard way is that just making sure that I couldn't have done any more. And that's not just in the game because, you know, you can't always do everything right all of the time, but that's in the preparation and in the time leading up to it. Could I have done any more and squeezed any more out of myself? Was I making the right decisions? All of those sorts of things. And if you can look back on that and be happy with the commitment that you gave to that cause, then actually we play sport. Not everybody gets to win and and therefore you can probably sit back and I'm not happy about the result, but I can accept that actually I don't have any what if moments because that's the bit that will eat you up. What if I did this? Would that have changed something? What if I could have done that, et cetera? So that's the one thing that you can take a bit of solace in. But yeah, it certainly doesn't change the result and it doesn't change the colour of the medal around your neck. But as I say, we play sport and that's part of what you sign up to. It's not always the perfect ending. And that's why people love it because it is so competitive and it comes right down to the wire. And have you learned over time to give yourself a bit more grace as you reflect on your process and your matches? Or again, is that something that you've always been able to do? I think definitely probably more learn that one along the way. And I think it's just how you go about it as well. Because one thing's for sure is you don't start caring less about what you do. I've definitely <laughs> that. You don't just, I've lost now in three World Cup finals to New Zealand, 2010, 2017, 2022 or 2021. And that definitely does not get any easier. And it shouldn't do. If it did, I think I should have hung my boots up a, a while ago. But as hard as you have to now squeeze everything you can out of it. I think all it's again a cliche, but you gain more from losing sometimes than you do from winning in terms of the lessons learned along the way. Now, obviously I'd prefer that if it didn't happen in a World <laughs> Cup final, I'd prefer if it was a, a warm up match along the way and it didn't mean yeah. anything, but it doesn't work like that either. So sometimes when you win, you don't reflect on things because you've got a gold medal and almost the process is irrelevant at that point. Whereas win or lose, it's really important to try and squeeze as much out of it as you can in terms of what could we have done better if we were here again in three years time, what would we do differently, et cetera. So that process is really important. So the Red Roses broke 
the Guinness World Record for most consecutive wins in International Rugby Union with 30 consecutive wins between 2019 and 2022. Thinking about this record made me reflect on the 2014 final between Canada and England in downtown Paris. That really felt like a step change for the sport, even though it wasn't packed to the rafters the way it was in 2022. In that final, you could feel a change in the global interest in the sport for sure. Can you take us back to that moment in France? How did it feel not only to elevate the Red Roses to the title of world champions, but also to be a part of the elevation of women's rugby that year? Yeah, it was unbelievable. I think we honestly had no idea at at that time, you know, stood on the field just with massive smiles on our faces. Again, a few tears from certain people, but we had no idea what that meant. I think it's not until, I mean, we're only in France for us. That's literally just over the water. So it's, you know, you're not far from home at all yet. We had no idea what kind of it had created back home. And it wasn't until we arrived back home, incredibly bleary eyed and slightly sore headed the next day (laughs) that you really understood you know, we were met by the press straight away. We were taken straight to Twickenham where there was a big crowd and a band playing for us. And we went straight into press rooms and, you know, media conferences and all that sort of stuff. And actually that is far more normal now, but that at that point, it, it was not a thing at all. We were going on BBC One shows, which is like a regular TV channel over here. Some of the girls, you were meeting like Harry Potter and people like that, which again, like you reflect on it, you know, it's just bizarre things start happening when you are really successful like that. But yeah, it was an amazing momentum shift. I think for us in this country, in terms of what it did for the game at a grassroots level and the participation numbers of women and girls, it was phenomenal. Did anyone take the opportunity to talk to Harry Potter about how Quidditch is just rugby on broomsticks? <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, and this is very controversial. I've never seen Harry Potter. I know. I can see all your faces. I know. So I that wasn't me, no. But I'm sure somebody <laughs> said something to him. I don't understand what that means. So. <laughs> so embracing that experience as a group, that must have been incredible to do that in that squad of colleagues and teammates that you'd been, some of them you'd been playing with for years. How important are those relationships to you? And yeah, how do you lean on those relationships as inspiration as a leader? They're so important and they're they're literally, you couldn't do what you do without those relationships. Some of the best friends that I have are in rugby or because of rugby. And I think that's incredibly special um, to have formed relationships like that just because of the hobby that you do or the now profession that we do. But yeah, some of the girls in that 2014 World Cup squad were amazing people. And there was a hell of a lot of people that were involved in 2010 as well. So there was that little bit of Right, well, we lost in the final in the Home World Cup. We know how that felt. Let's go and do one better this time. So there's inevitably a bit of trying to make sure we didn't get the same result again. But yeah, some of those people in that squad are, as I say, some of my the best friends that I have in, in the whole world at the moment. So yeah, it's cool. And as a team captain or vice captain, you're engaging with your teammates and also collaborating with the coaching staff in the corporate world. We call that managing up. How do you approach managing your coach relationships? Yeah, I mean, it's a really important one. And obviously we've had numerous coaches along the way and and their personalities are inevitably all quite different. But it's such an important relationship that you need to have, you know, whether you get each other as people or whether you're similar or whether you're completely different, whatever it is, there has to be a mutual respect there. There has to be and understand, you know, them to understand how important a player point of view is because ultimately they're not out there physically playing the game. They're not out there having all those small conversations. And for a lot of them, actually, they're also not women. 
So actually the difference sometimes that that creates as well. And obviously for them to obviously respect you and what you do and and trust you, put an element of trust in you as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, some relationships with coaches have been easier than others, some more productive than others. And that's just natural, I think, in terms of the different personalities and maybe how they see the game or how they see a team running. Some coaches nowadays, especially much more so, are very player centred and, and are more and more to come from the players. And they just kind of orchestrate rather than, you know, tell, which I think is happening more and more. But yeah, fundamentally, the relationship with the coach is so important you need to be able to have tough conversations and you also need to be able to go to them and be like that session was not good or you were not getting the best out of this person and, da, da, da. and I guess that can be quite a, a daunting prospect of a conversation because in short you're potentially telling them that that day they weren't very good at their job mm-hmm. but actually if everybody understands what we're aiming for and why we're having those conversations you know it's not a personal thing it's about how can we be better and we as players coaches other staff all together and what type of coaching style resonates with you the most like what type of environment have you learned over the years sort of ideal for your performance and what you've seen really resonate with your colleagues and your teammates I think it's one that really challenges me and challenges me to a point where I'm a bit uncomfortable and I probably don't like it but actually that's really good for me so it's like kind of that balance of this is annoying me but actually I think it's getting the best from me and obviously there's a quite a fine tipping balance there to be found but yeah that I think for me personally definitely that like I even at 32 years old I still think I can learn so much about the game be better all of those sorts of things so I don't want to coast I want to be challenged to consistently improve if I'm able to and I think it's exactly the same for the group as well. One element on the rugby pitch that folks sometimes forget is you're also managing a relationship with the ref. So there's the referee chat and conversations need to happen. We actually hear now on when we're watching the matches on TV, you can hear the referee speaking. You can also hear them running when they don't turn the mic off. (laughs) Can you think of a time when you managed a referee really well in conversation? And would you be open to sharing a time when perhaps you didn't manage a conversation that well? I think definitely one I haven't managed very well is when we don't really speak the same language. And I don't think I appreciated that very well. So I was trying to go in straight away with something quite complex, probably said it quite fast. And they just look at me as if I'm speaking another language because I was. So it's actually an important part of a game prep piece to learn about the referee and understand where they're from, what language do they speak? Have they done other games you've done before, et cetera, et cetera, to try and build up a relationship there or at least know that how you speak to them is something that's going to be understood (laughs) and receptive. But yeah, I mean, I think generally, again, coming back to that, hopefully trying to be a good person piece, I think that's really important when speaking to a referee. I would not want to be one and I've never had to be one, but I can fully appreciate how difficult that job is. And, you know, we expect them to be on the money every single time. And if they're not, people start throwing their arms in the air, whereas no one throws their arms in the air if I drop a pass, because that's me not being perfect all of the time. So we expect such high standards of them. So I think there has to be an element of empathy there and understanding that they are also human beings and will make mistakes. So hopefully just speaking to them in a way that, you know, doesn't directly challenge them, but just lets them know, maybe I've seen this, that perhaps you haven't, what do we think about this and trying to do it together rather than telling them because generally referees don't particularly like to be told something. (laughs) They're obviously quite 
big personalities themselves. So yeah, you've got to work with them definitely. What's your best advice for rugby players who are engaging with referees on their Saturday matches? I think it's not being too much, but also not being too little, if that makes sense, just finding the balance. So trying to be conversational because you don't want to get to the point where you've really pissed them off and they don't want to say anything to you, but you also don't want to get to the point where you're trying to be friends with them because also that they also see right through that because <laughs> that's not realistic. So, yeah. And I think it's just trying to a little bit like with the coaching thing, it's trying to with the referee wants the game to be good mm-hmm. and they want to be, have a good performance. I want the game to be good and I want to have a good performance. So actually meeting in the middle with that common goal, hopefully is a good thing. The common thread being the love of rugby, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I love about 15s rugby is that it's one of the biggest team sports you can possibly play. It takes all different folks from all walks of life, and that makes it actually quite inclusive. There's a spot for everyone on a rugby pitch. As a leader in 15s rugby, you have a really wide range of people to manage and engage with, your teammates and your colleagues. What leadership values do you hold tightest as you engage with your team? Oh yeah, it can be absolute carnage sometimes. <laughs> well, you think of a rugby team, we've got, so at the World Cup, you could have an 18-year-old and Sarah Hunter was our oldest player at 37. So immediately there, you've got one hell of an age gap. You've got one hell of a spread of diversity in terms of how people were brought up, their beliefs, race, sexuality, all of those sorts of things. And you're just- People who watch Harry Potter, people who don't watch Harry Potter. Exactly. People that judge people for not watching Harry Potter. You've got (laughs) all of them. (laughs) And they're all in the same place and you all are working for a, a one common goal. So it's certainly not without its challenge. But the one thing you do all have is where you want to go and what you want to achieve. And that's really, really important. And you don't want everyone to become carbon copies of one another. That's also really important because you don't get the best out of them. And also it's, you know, it's not realistic. So making sure that people understand that and the journey and where we want to go, but also being themselves within that and whatever that looks like. So a freedom of expression in terms of you and your personality. And that might be sitting by yourself in the corner, reading a book, or it might be I don't know, singing karaoke for everyone to hear, which definitely happens. So yeah, it's definitely not easy, but the common goal is the bit that really keeps you all going in the same direction. And it's actually really applicable also in the workspace that I think a lot of folks sort of graduate from university, come in maybe to their first role and they feel like, okay, there's a right way to be at work. You know, there's a way to be, I leave myself at home and then I bring my work self to work. And actually, I find the folks that have the most joy and thrive in the workplace tend to start sort of integrating themselves and really just bringing their authentic energy to work. And I think as leaders, creating an environment where people feel safe to do that and free to do that is part of your responsibility. And do you have conversations with folks like Sarah Hunter and other members of the leadership team about how to create that energy and that environment for your teammates? Yeah, I mean, we do a huge amount of work on all of this sort of stuff and obviously the bigger cultural piece and all of that. And I think it basically boils down to people being comfortable in an environment to then be whoever they want to be. And I think it's important to make sure that that environment is a safe one. So, you know, people come into a what they deem a safe environment, they then will be themselves and they will, as I say, do whatever variation of that that looks like. But yeah, it's. I think it's all, again, just building relationships with people. And that's not just players. It's got to come through staff as well, because staff are a huge part of the environment. So actually, if you feel really comfortable with the players, 
but you don't with the staff and they're always there, then actually you're not going to be the best version of yourself either. And we have to remember this isn't a school environment either. So the staff aren't the teachers. We're in this together. We're one team. And at the moment, some of us are older than some of the staff. So it's definitely (laughs) not the case. But yeah, I think, and also people have got to trust the environment. And there's an element of that on themselves as well, not just Mm -hmm. on, you know, the leaders to create that or anything. You've got to come in open-minded and be able to present the best version of yourself as well as hopefully there being an environment for you to do that. So speaking of different voices, you've actually mentioned that folks come up to you now, not just because you're an international rugby player, but because of your podcast, The Good, The Scaz and The Rugby. So I'm curious, why did you start the pod and what do you enjoy most about doing the podcast with Elma and Mo? To be honest, the story of the start isn't a particularly exciting one. And um, Alex Payne, who does The Good, The Bad, The Rugby, along with Mike Tindall and James Haskell, he actually just messaged me one day and was like, hey, Skaz, we're thinking we want to do it like a women's spin-off. We can't cover the women's game as well as we want to. We'd love to just do a, a basically a sister show and do it properly. What are your thoughts? And I was a bit like, oh, again, it's not naturally my personality to hold the mic, throw questions to people, hold a room, etc. So I was a bit kind of probably tentative with my reply. And then a few weeks later, he just messaged me again and was like, right, it's happening. So I didn't really get a huge (laughs) amount of choice in it. But in the same way, that was a really good thing. Like it's taken me completely out of my comfort zone. We've spoken to some amazing people along the way in rugby, out of rugby, in different spaces within rugby, which has been really, really interesting and learned a lot from different people that we've spoken to. So, yeah. And the feedback again for it that we get from it. I mean, Elma's unbelievable. She's so good. And there's a huge kind of production team behind it as well who are amazing that edit out all the bad bits Shira edits out all the rubbish that we come out with sometimes so yeah I mean it's definitely not me by any stretch of the imagination but it's been quite cool to be a part of to be fair and as I say the reaction we've had and where we seem to be going with it only seems to be quite a positive thing was it also partially convincing that the name (laughs) is just so good the good the scaz and the rugby you couldn't say no Again, I had no choice over that either. (laughs) We joined a Zoom call not long after Alex was like, right, it's happening. Jumped on this call and they pulled up a slide and it was like the good scars in the rugby. And I was like, is the name up for discussion? And they were like, no. I was like, perfect. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) The continuity obviously works brilliantly, but just the thought of having my name, albeit a nickname in something like that, I was a a bit shy about to say the least. It's that classic thing of you being pushed just a little bit, which you said that you sort of like being. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What have you learned the most out of doing the podcast? Oh, that's a good question. I think, as I say, it's been just really interesting to speak to different people. And I think one thing I have learned is often I have a lot of things that happen in my head that I don't always verbalize. So it's similar with a podcast, you might be talking to someone and something pops into your head and then you don't say it or you don't ask that question. Whereas that's exactly what people are doing at home who are listening to it. So actually me asking that question is potentially what somebody else is wondering as well. So I guess it's maybe an element of just being a bit braver with some of that stuff. As I say, Elma's so good at what she does and she holds us all together. But where can I add a bit of value in there as well, either through an experience or I guess from that non, non-media point of view, because that obviously isn't my background. What advice might you have to a young athlete that's just starting to get to know the sport of rugby? Oh, just jump in. I think, yeah, just get involved. I think one of the great things about rugby is actually you don't need to play the full contact version if you don't want to. 
it's the version I play and I absolutely love, but there's also, you know, certain versions of it that don't have the contact if that is the bit that I'm a fan of. There's obviously Sevens, which is a brilliant game, exhausting, but brilliant. There's Touch, there's Tag, there's all these different things that you can get involved with. And the best thing about rugby, and everyone will say, is the, the communities that it has and the teams, the people, the relationships that you make along the way. And any one of those versions of the game will give you that. So yeah, be brave, get stuck in. I can guarantee whatever club you go to, you'll be greeted open arms and whether you can't catch and you can't run, you'll still be incredibly welcome there. And what do you imagine, Emily, the landscape of women's rugby might look like in 10 years? I hope more professionalism around the world. I hope more professionalism domestically as well. Obviously, we've got a phenomenal league here in England, which we're incredibly lucky to have. But that development around the world as well. The moment in our league, we've got internationals from all over the world because it's so highly regarded. But you know, how much more talent could we have if we had those domestic leagues? You know, in Canada, in America, or in all these places where there's such a wealth of population and athletic ability. Yeah, and I think just there's got to be money in the game for all of those things to happen. I think the biggest things for me and what we've seen, obviously, in rugby, certainly in England, the last couple of well six months or so it's got to be sustainable Mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing we don't want to do this with it and then it come crashing back down it has to be sustainable and then just continue to grow the fan base and stick it out there in front of people on tv on social media wherever it is because it's a phenomenal game and yeah the more people that know about it the better and on the point of sustainability what types of things do you hope will be in place to maintain the sustainability of women's rugby of the professionalization. Cash. <laughs> cash. <laughs> Cold hard cash. Yeah, I'm only joking. But obviously, <laughs> like, sides, not as players, but the organizations behind that, they do need money. They need the investment. And they do need it from the commercial side of things as well, because running a professional rugby side costs a hell of a lot of money. So that is one of the things. But as I say, if we can continue to, one, make the product great, which I hope certainly is a national side, we're, we're definitely trying to do to showcase how brilliant some of the individuals are in the side. And yeah, that all of those things should hopefully attract those kind of commercial partners because generally rugby players, they're not boring. They don't read off a hymn sheet. <laughs> they have their own personalities and hopefully that's real life. That's engage- more engaging to more people. Emily, this was amazing. It's such a pleasure to meet you. This was just wonderful. Thank you so much for saying yes to spending time with us. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed myself. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Okay, so for today's debrief, we have decided to bring in two subject matter experts. I don't know if our listeners have been paying attention, but Amar and I are not particularly specialists in sports, especially rugby. (laughs) Yeah, Amar and Elizabeth were very clear that they were excited for this episode, but didn't necessarily know how to debrief it with me. And I respect your self-awareness. So we would like to welcome Stu McReynolds and David Butcher. Stu, do you want to start with anything that stood out to you? So there were two key themes that resonated with me from the podcast. I think the first one, and what really always interests me, is someone's entry into sport. 
And, you know, when I was listening to Emily, she rocked up to the rugby club with her brother, I think, and it was a coach on the sidelines that then provided an opportunity, opened a door. And I think that's always cool to kind of see how individuals get involved in sport and, and rugby certainly being more inclusive that, you know, you have to pick up a ball and play. And I think that's something that resonated well with me is because what are we doing nowadays and, and in different sporting environments to open those doors for opportunities, especially in sports that don't traditionally welcome participants from a certain demographic, a certain gender, a certain background into their clubhouse or their sport. And so that was really cool to see, again, the coaches or these individuals that open the doors to start that participation. I think that's something that really resonated with me. And I think the other piece in terms of Emily herself is just her commitment and longevity in her career and just how she's been able to perform at the highest levels for such a long period and be such a stalwart of the game. I think she said in the interview that she thought 2008 was going to be her last chance to play on the international stage or something like this. Um, So 15 years later, I mean, she's still vice captain, which is incredible. Yeah. As far as entry into sport as well, I made the point about Canada and hockey. Kids can get really overwhelmed in hockey really, really fast. What is that sport in the UK or does that happen in the UK? Does it happen with football or does it happen with rugby or not really? I'd say soccer. I, having kind of first-hand experience now, like my youngest is in, in hockey and you always walk into something as a coach, watching it as a coach, don't you? Unfortunately, being told not to do that by my, my kids, but it's all-encompassing. It's, it is overwhelming. And the only other sport I've seen that does the same thing is soccer. And I think part of it as well is the, the parents' perception of what's going to happen when they end of the sport with some kids. Right. Is a little bit fanatical and crazy at some point with the parents. And I think it's to do maybe with the the size of the sport and what their kids could do and, you know, all that type of thing. But I think rugby is a very, very different sport, even though it's huge in Europe. Um, I don't think you have that same kind of fanatical nature from the parents. A lot of it is ex-players bringing kids down, I would say, more than just there's obvious in, in soccer and hockey. There's a lot of parents that hadn't played it. So I think that's, you know, one of the the big differences, maybe one of the barriers to the sport as well. I think it makes such a difference when you have somebody that's played it before. One thing I think to pick up from what Butch said, I think in Canada, we struggle with the concept of play and then playing sport. And, you know, going back to Butch's point about soccer in England, you know, I remember growing up as a kid and all of my friends, you would just bike to the local park, throw your sweater on the ground and you'd play. And you wouldn't play to compete, you play for the enjoyment and the fun or those pieces. Whereas in Canada, you know, we've got such a structured approach to participation in sport. You know, you go to a structured club, a, st- a structured practice, and, you know, everything's very structured towards the sports system and competition versus that unstructured play love of the game. And I think when you see countries that do well in competitive sport, and I think New Zealand does one in rugby, You know, when you go to that country, you see these kids down the parks, barefoot, running and playing unstructured. And I think that's one thing that we we should be thinking about in Canada is how do we support the unstructured play? How do we create these opportunities just to go and just to be kids and and play the sport versus playing to compete in the sport as that, that main entry point? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a lot of the, uh, the junior leagues now, you know, talking to friends back in Scotland that they, they don't record wins, that it's not for trophies at the end or anything like that. So that, you know, exactly like Stu said, it's it's playing to just get better at the sport and enjoy the sport first and foremost, knowing that the competitive side and performance side of it will come much later on. 
I think, you know, that's one of the things I think rugby's doing really well to to attract more people in. Um, but it also maybe uh, in North America, seeing the, the difference in just how the approach to sport is. It's like even my my youngest daughter, like seven years old, like they're competing for like kind of a medal in the tournaments and stuff like that, which is great if they win. But I still think it's a it's a bit of a barrier. When I think about play in sport, I think about any Fijian rugby team, like everybody just looks like they're having fun while they're yeah. at the highest level of competition. Yeah. It's incredible on the women's side and on the men's side, both. It's just amazing how the spirit of the game is just alive every time they play. And I feel like that seriousness that we bring to the structure and the, the pieces of the game, it's of course you need it for strategy, but how do you keep that spark alive? And Stu, while you were playing professional rugby, were you able to keep it alive? And then Butch, I'll ask you the same thing. Yeah, it's interesting because in my, you know, I played a lower tier professional rugby and that was a, a conscious choice to use the sport to travel the world. So when I was playing pro, I was in, I was in the southern Spain. So for me, it was a, a mix of doing something that I loved every day, but then being immersed in a new culture, learning a new language, you know, in a team comprised of players from all over the world. And that for me was just a phenomenal experience. And that you can see how slowly some of the enjoyment is, is then removed from them playing a sport. And I think there was a study done a few years ago in professional rugby athletes that very few actually enjoy the playing of the sport in terms of their career because, you know, in addition to the S&C and all of the all of the pieces that are added onto you, you sometimes forget why you play the sport. So for me, you know, there were times where, yeah, it, it was tough, but uh, I use sport to travel the world, to meet new people and to immerse myself in new cultures. So I certainly, to a good degree, was was kind of able to hold on to that. And I think that's where I want to try and give back now is, you know, through mixed ability rugby, through grassroots, through those pieces is starting with the the love of rugby, starting with the fun element and then kind of building from that. So Stu's approach was play rugby around the world, but make sure there's tapas. Butch, what was your experience? You played in Scotland. I kind of used rugby as a vehicle to kind of experience things. And at the same time, you know, obviously challenge myself to play I think looking back on on playing, you know, I enjoyed playing, but did I always enjoy the training, the lifestyle, the environment that was created? Probably not looking back on it, but you just kind of better than digging holes in roads and things like that, isn't it? You know, you play, you know, you're training for a sport you love and you, you know, you recognize as you get a bit older that you're very blessed to do it. And kind of full circle from the amateur days into the professional and back into the, you know, you have to enjoy what you do. So you see the best, and I've been looking to kind of walk into these these environments, is you see the best environments and everyone's got a smile on the face. It's almost kind of an environment that creates fun and enjoyment, even at the very top level. And I think when rugby first went professional, everyone thought it had to be super serious. We had to train all the time. was always having to be switched on. Whereas now, you know, we've got coaches that are better educated. We've got people that are educating the coaches around, you know, learning environments and the best way for people to learn and enjoyment. I believe now you have to create an environment where the players, the athletes, support staff around you want to come to work. They're enjoying what they're doing. They're laughing and joking, smile on your face. But the players recognize when there's a switch that has to go on and you have to be serious. I think fun and enjoyment, even at the top end of the professional level, is probably even more more needed than at the bottom level because things there's so much pressure on these people. And one of the threads that we pulled on during the interview with Emily was 
about authenticity. So she talked a lot about how the best environment created a framework for folks to come in and they have all different types of backgrounds, different skill levels, but bringing them together and them being able to express themselves in the game was key. So there wasn't one right way to be a red rose. What they wanted was for folks to just bring their best selves to the game. And we've coached together, the three of us, and I learned so much about that from working with both of you. And Stu, can you speak a little bit about the concept of creating a framework around expression and rugby being a form of creative expression? And then Butch, I'll ask you the same thing. Yeah, for sure. And I think rugby is a great example, especially because of the transition that the sport's gone. And uh, I think over the past 10 years, we've looked at rugby players as almost being robotic. You know, you have to be a certain weight, a certain height and look at the the physical determinants of playing the sport versus the characters that play the sport. And I think for me, that's such a key piece of that framework is character encouraging individuals to be themselves, focus on their individual strengths and then align that to a team goal or a team objective. And I think that's the common goal is that we want to create that standard. You want to create a a set of values for a team. You want to create a goal to achieve. And then you give the team autonomy to be themselves and how you go about achieving that goal and aligning to those values versus dictating every single step of the way. And what excites me now is I think the butcher's point, how the game's come in full circle almost is, I think it's the Italian, uh, on the men's side, the Italian 15, Capuzzo, who's just a tiny, tiny man who is lighting up rugby. And, and I think about, you know, players like Emily and players in the female game and just that representation of any size, any background, no matter where you've come from, you've got a role in the sport now. Uh, and I think that for me is critical. So I think providing that autonomy and and allowing people to be themselves, to express themselves and put down their strengths is something that's going to make the game better and something we should embrace. And and you're certainly starting to see that now with, you know, getting a bit of character back into the game with these smaller players that are just doing phenomenal things on the field and, and being good rugby players. So for me, it's about creating that environment for people to, to turn up, be themselves, yet still aligning to achieving that ultimate goal and the values that the team sets. And Butch, given that every year at the Queen's Men's Rugby Program, you're getting a new cohort of athletes coming into that space. How often do you reinforce the concept of self-expression in a framework? And how do you communicate that to your team? And how often do you communicate it? I think the culture around what you do is is the the basically the foundation of everything that goes on. We very much look at a a values-based culture. I think when a culture can be dictated, it's got to be agreed upon using these values as kind of accountability measures working in the background. And I think, you know, when you once you set values with the team and it has to be, you know, in conjunction with the team, they define your behavioral norms and, and you know, drive you know, personal accountability, shared accountability, what you want to, you know, what you want to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. It's gone from the days where you can call them like non-negotiables. I think that's too hard a word. I think if if you're working with your players every single year they come in and you're talking to maybe, you know, the way we do it is we talk to our senior leadership group about what they feel the values are and then they do go and actually speak to the team and actually get their feedback and input and then we kind of move it all around and then they present it to the team and the team sign off on it, but the coaches are accountable to it as well. So we're all part of the same team. So we have, we have to sign off on it as well. Uh, but every year we, we revisit it to see whether, you know, we want those values to, to be what 
what we want to be. And it's not me that holds them accountable, or very rarely is it me that holds them accountable. It's the, the team that holds each other accountable, and they hold me accountable to it as well. So I think once you've got those values set, and they guide your, your culture, environment, your accountability, then everything can move off that. If you haven't got them, how do you know what you believe in? How do you know what destination you want to go? How do you know what accountability there is? How do you know what you're working towards? How do you know what your norms are? I always find it very, very difficult to come in or see a program that hasn't got a cultural model. Uh, it doesn't have to be values-based. It can just be a cultural model. I, just, I always struggle to understand how do you define who you are? Describing that self-correcting model almost. Once you have the culture set, the players and athletes will step in and make sure that it's all heading in the right direction. Yeah. Stu, I'm curious, an athlete like Emily, who is a generational talent for the women's game, without a doubt, she described that her role in the leadership team, they had specific people they pull at different times. What role does somebody like that play in any of the teams that you've seen before? Someone who can just really level up the game in their performance and through actions as opposed to necessarily words? Well, I think it's a foundational role. And something that resonated with me, you know, what Emily said is is her nickname, Flatline, yeah. you know, in terms of her emotion. And, and for me, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. The role that she plays and it's leadership through action, you know, and you can see her as she comes across very humble and doesn't necessarily acknowledge kind of the impact that she's having, not only on her team, but the, the sport of women's rugby uh, in whole. And I think it's that humbleness, it's that consistency in how she applies herself that makes her a leader. That, you know, if it's the 79th minute and you're down by three points, where do you look? You look to the person who you can always depend on and rely on. For me as a coach, that's what you build teams around. They're the foundational pillars that not only perform, but they set and hold a standard, especially for younger athletes coming into a team, especially in those kind of crucial moments. You really rely on them to kind of uphold the values and be that foundational pillar and for me, it's just that consistency. And again, so remarkable that she's been able to kind of do what she's done for such a long period. But it's always those players that are consistent with the values and always the players that you can turn to that you know will put an arm around others when they need it most as well. And Butch, we talked a bit about the professional women's league in the UK. So in the last three or four years, England's really led the way in professionalizing the women's side of the game. What impact do you think it would have for us to continue to do that in other areas of the world for the women's side of the rugby game? Oh, it'd be huge. I think the, I think there's multiple barriers to it, but I think you know you've seen how the Premiership in England is really it's going from strength to strength, and it's fantastic rugby. You know, like I'd rather rather watch some of that rugby than some of the you know the kind of just smash it up rugby that goes on. So it is like a genuine, genuine high level rugby. My uh, my worry is that you know over a period of time that the RFU do what they did with the men and quite rightly so is that they start putting EQP in place and then less and less foreign players can, can come across what did those restrictions look like when that happened with the men with the RFU it's a quarter basically so you okay. can't just flood your team with imports and don't get me wrong there's still a lot of high level imports coming across into the men's game you know as you can see from the, from the premiership and France is a slightly different beast but I think that, you know, that'll come eventually. And then obviously they'll start looking at academies such as the men's game and starting to pull, uh, you know, homemade players through, which obviously they should be as well, because the whole point of that that league is to develop players for that country. I still think the top players in other countries will come across. The likes of someone like Sophie de Goody could go and play in any league in the world and still be a, a standout performer. I think the the worry from the, the women's point of view in Canada is, well, what's next? 
if they can't make the commitment to go across because there's a huge commitment some of these women are making, you know, you know, up in sticks and go and live in another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what if they can't do that? You know, what, what do we do? And then how do we do it? And maybe, you know, looking down the road 10 years time, you know, maybe it's the, the MLR starts investing in, in some of the women's teams. I know some, you know, some of the MLR teams are starting to do that at the minute, which is great to see. And I think that would be the way forward. My one worry would be, you know, we've got the raw talent in Canada. We've got some like unbelievable athletes in the women's game um, who are as good athletes, if not better athletes, than than the rest of the, the top teams in the world. However, you know, if you're not cultivating that talent from a very young age, you know, how do we how do we keep pulling that through? How do we stay in the, the top three teams in the world? I don't think anyone's got the answer at the minute. And I think the other leagues across the world are helping us at the moment. I think eventually it's got to be a, something that's taken on if we want to stay there. You could see in the level of play for the World Cup at the end of last year, it was just head and shoulders above where it was 10 years ago, even four years ago. Oh, yeah. And you could see that every side benefited from the professionalization of the England team is just that level of play. And anytime anyone played England as well, they brought their best, including Canada. They had an incredible game. Stu, what stood out to you most from observing some of the matches in the World Cup last year? I think, well, first and foremost, Canada can be incredibly proud of their campaign. You know, that game against England was phenomenal. When you think about, you know, to Butch's point, you know, we've got some of the best athletes in the world, best female athletes in the world. And if we were able to cultivate that talent and invest a bit more and provide more resources, how good could we be? And I think, you know, certainly punching above our weight was a key theme of of that World Cup. And, and then how do we carry that momentum? You know, when we see, you know, young female athletes and girls watching that Canadian team perform like that, being under-resourced in, you know, a country in the side of the world, how do we capture that attention and create those opportunities? So I think, you know, it's certainly something that we need to be thinking about from a Canadian perspective. When it comes to the final, like, I don't know if I've seen a closer game or a better sport and spectacle than that final win. To England, I get a player sent off in the first 20 minutes and oh. go back and forth like a tennis game and then to have three points in it. I think, you know, Eden Park was filled. So what a just a testament to the athletes who commit so much and are phenomenal athletes and what a showpiece for the game of women's rugby. And again, just showing if we invest, if we have a strategy behind growing the game, how big this game can actually get in the future. And of course, the next World Cup for the women's side is going to be in England. It may or may not be Emily's last. Let's see if she is able to play in that World Cup. But she mentioned when we spoke that one of the standout moments was listening to the New Zealand national anthem in Eden Park. And so I really do hope that she gets to get that experience in Twickenham. And Butch, bringing that back to the next phase of women's rugby in the next four years of the sport, do you see an avenue for there to be more professionalization around the world? And is there anything we can do as individuals in the community and in the game to support that? Yeah, I totally see that, you know, more and more countries contracting players so you know you think now obviously all the England players are contracted they were kind of the first to go the New Zealand players are contracted believe Australia to some degree and uh, Wales have just contracted I think 21 of their players and Scotland obviously who who were a little bit behind on the in the women's game at the minute but are, are starting to invest a lot of finance in it have just contracted a lot of their players so you look at all the home nations um, they've contracted, you look at New Zealand, Australia, their contract. So they're all moving towards professionalization of, of rugby. My one worry is, yes, I think that women's rugby could go really big in those countries. 
because um, they're doing a lot of good work to invest not only in the, the finance but the coaching. You look at going back to Stu's that game, um, that final game of the World Cup was an outstanding game of rugby. My my one worry going back to what we were talking about before is if these countries keep forging ahead and pushing ahead, you know the tier one nations as they did with the men's rugby, you know drop behind just purely because of finance investment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think it's going to move at pace like the men's game did. You know, they've professionalised a lot of these countries already and they've taken massive leaps. I think all it takes is, you know, someone to really invest finance into this and it'll accelerate really quickly. Amazing. Thank you both so much for agreeing to do this debrief on a very special episode on the women's game. You're both incredible leaders and advocates on both sides of the game and, and just can't thank you enough for everything you do. No problem. Pleasure.